Uh, it, it really is a joy to be here. It was a joy to spend time with your pastoral team. Um, many of the guys that I've had the privilege of working with together in Sovereign Grace contexts, uh, Mark and Jared on the leadership team and Andy uh, on the uh, first executive committee and right now working with Rob on doing some important stuff with our adjudication stuff and then uh, Jim working with evangelism over the years and um, the other guys that I haven't worked with I wish I could because of just the love and respect and joy that those men are to me. Um, you know, a lot of times um, sovereign, sovereign Grace leaders and pastors um, are honored and appropriately so. But uh, let me just this morning before we dive into God's word, thank you. Because here is the reality. It is because of you that sovereign grace not only exists, but it is what it is. Uh, these men can only do what they do because of the testimony of your lives and the testimony of this church. Your, your love for God, your love for God's word, your love for God's people, your love for the church, your love for the lost, um, that's what makes sovereign grace what sovereign grace is. And so, um, joy to be with those guys. I always love to be with them, but it's, it's humbling and it's an honor to be with you because of what you mean to sovereign grace and what you mean to this church in this area. So thank you, thank you, thank you for that. Uh, you can open up to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, and if you like titles, uh, the title is Living Unshaken in a Shaky World. Uh, Philip Melanchthon was one of the great reformers. He was known as Luther's scholar. And on his deathbed, he requested that Romans 8 be read to him. And when he got to verse 31, if God is for us, who can be against us? He asked that that verse be read again. And when it was, he simply murmured this, that's it, that's it. And so he died with confidence, he died secure because God was for him and not even death could be against him. And he was a man who lived in incredibly turbulent and threatening times because of the great truths of the gospel that we find in this passage. So I, I praise God for the example of men like Philip Melanchthon because in reality, most of us, including myself, struggle more than we like to admit with living unshaken in a shaky world. John Stott has said, Insecurity is written across all human experience. Uh, just think of where we are now. Is, is there going to be a world war? We're dealing with inflation and, wow, what are my kids going to be learning and bringing home from school? And Christian values are increasingly being attacked as, as hateful. And then in your own personal life, maybe a relationship, maybe job, maybe health. And if you aren't secure in God's 
acceptance and love for you. The acceptance and love that I believe the passage we're going to look at today expounds more than any other passage in Scripture. If you aren't secure in those things, uh, a whole list of uh, all-too-common problems result. Fear, worry, anxiety, discouragement, depression, uh, doubt. And, And when that happens, this shaky world becomes for us the dominant reality of our lives instead of the unshakability of God and the gospel. But here is what we find out in Romans, that our security in this life and in the life to come isn't grounded in our circumstances, but instead it's grounded in the love of God conspicuously demonstrated for us in the gospel. So I'm going to read several passages from Romans before we dive into the main passage I want to look at, verses 31 through 39. Romans 8, 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Verse 18. For I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worthy comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Verse 23, and not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. And then verses 28 through 39. And we know That for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. And now what we want to spend the majority of our time with. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, as it is written, for your sake we are being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No! In all of these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor heights, nor depths, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. 
Um, well, we could almost stop now, couldn't we? Go home full. Father, I thank you for everything in your word, but for a passage like this that just speaks to and resonates in our hearts in, in such a, a powerful way and to, to life in such a powerful way. And uh, I, I pray that it would affect each and every one of us uh, today, that we would leave here answering the question, what shall we say to these things in exactly the way that Paul has? And to that end, Holy Spirit, I, I need you. I, I need your grace. I'm not up to the task. Um, your grace is up to the task. Your anointing is. And I pray for your precious people here this morning that, um, Holy Spirit, you would, you would work in their minds and work in their hearts to cement these truths so that no matter what they are tempted to be shaken by right now, uh, they would be unshaken because of your word. I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, uh, a lot of different ways to break down this passage have been suggested, but I'm just going to go with this one question and then two main answers to that question. And the one question is what we find in 831. What then shall we say to these things? These things being everything that Paul has said before in chapter 8. So 8.1, uh, no condemnation. 8.18, suffering but then glory. 8.23, our current groaning. Uh, 8.28, that God, uh, in, New, in New American Standard, causes all things to work for good. And then 8.29 and 30, this unbreakable chain of salvation that God foreknew, he predestined, he called, he justified, he glorified. And notice there are no breaks at all in that chain that those whom he, he also. But don't we as human beings have a unique ability to think up what ifs? Yeah, but, but what if? So here Paul deals with the what ifs by asking us a series of questions that force us to respond. So how are we to process? What do we make of these things? What do we say to these things? Well, Paul gives two answers in the form of more questions, uh, two judicial answers and one relational answer. So uh, first, two judicial answers in verse 31 through 34. The first one we find in verses 31 and 32. If God is for us, who can be against us? He did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Paul is really throwing down a gauntlet here uh, for us. He's, he, he's daring anybody to step up and challenge what he's said in these statements. And basically saying nothing can be said to refute uh, this statement. If God is for us, now we might ask, well, is he? I don't know. Maybe he is, but maybe not. Sometimes he is, but I'm not sure he always is. Um, actually, I'm sometimes perplexed when I look at my circumstances and that, you know, if God is for me, how could this be happening to me. But, but Paul's if here isn't an if of doubt. 
It's an if of certainty. A sense would probably be a better word to use since God is for us, who could be uh, uh, against us. And, and note that he doesn't simply ask who can be against us because he later lists a whole bunch of things that could actually be against us in, in, in this world, a whole array of things that can be and actually regularly are against it. There's many potential adversaries that we have in a fallen world. But he asks this, if God is for us, who can be against us? And that changes all potential answers. It changes the entire equation. Imagine one of those old fashioned scales with a plate on two sides like Lady Justice would hold. And we start putting in the one side of the scale all the things that could be against us. And it goes down and down and down and down and down. And the picture begins to look pretty bleak until on the other side of the scale, we put God being for us. And it completely changes the balance, doesn't it? But we do need to ask, how can we be secure in that truth and the cross of Jesus Christ is the definitive answer to any doubts that we might have about God being for us. Paul, Paul says, how? And that how introduces the absolutely inconceivable nature of the question. No one could possibly come up with a how that God would not be for us if he didn't spare his own son, but rather gave him up for us all. If, if God would give us his most precious, if God would give us his own son, how can we conceive, how can we imagine that, they would with, that he would then withhold anything of lesser value from us? It was, it was as if you'd be willing to give someone a billion dollars, but you wouldn't be willing to give them a penny. And he does it graciously graciously eliminates the, but I don't, I don't deserve it. I, I, no, you don't deserve it. I don't deserve it. None of us, none of us deserves that. That's why it was and it will always be gracious to us. And then all things. Now, when, when Paul writes all things, we have to be careful not to fall into some kind of false prosperity gospel here. The all things promised are all things that are needful for us. They, they are all things that are for our ultimate eternal good. Puritan John Flavel said it this way, how is it imaginable that God should withhold after this spirituals or temporals from his people? How shall he not then call them effectually, justify them freely, sanctify them thoroughly, and glorify them eternally? How shall he not clothe them, feed them, protect and deliver them. Surely, if he would not spare his own son, one stroke, one tear, one groan, one sigh, one circumstance of misery, it can never be imagined that ever he should, after this, deny or withhold from his people, for whose sakes all of this was suffered, any mercies, any comforts, any privilege, spiritual or temporal, 
which is good for them. But he goes on with a second answer in verses 33 through 44. Who, 34, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. So who? Now, many are trying to bring a charge against us. The devil is tirelessly the accuser of the brethren, standing before God, just accusing day and night um, other people sometimes bring charges against us or our own conscience. And certainly the guilt of our own sin brings charges against us. But God has an answer for all of the who's that would bring charges against us. And the answer is simply this, he justifies. He justifies. He has, he has declared us to be righteous before him. He has declared that all our sins, past, present, and future, have been forgiven. He has declared that we stand in a right relationship with him. And so, since it's God who justifies in that way, who is to condemn? And the answer is nobody. There is no one who can overturn God's judicial declaration over your life of justified righteous, not condemned, now not condemned. Uh, in a human court, there, there can be appeals. And appeals can overturn the decision of a lower court until it gets to the Supreme Court. And, and when the Supreme Court rules, well, then that's the end of appeals. Well, God is the Supreme Court. God is the supreme judge of the, the, the universe and, and there is no appeal beyond him. And since his judgment is perfect and since his judgment is unchanging, um, he's never gonna change it. He's never gonna reconsider it. There's nothing provisional about your justification. There's nothing probationary about your justification. It is permanent over your life. And then in verse 34, the grounds of your justification is on the finished work of Christ. That he died once and for all, finished work. The proof of your justification is this, that more than that, he was raised. And then the security of our justification is this, that even now he sits at the right hand of God, interceding, for you as your great high priest and your reigning king. And, and he intercedes by his very presence. I think oftentimes when we think of interceding, we think, well, Jesus is praying for us, and, and I think he is. But the idea here isn't Jesus' prayers, it's Jesus' presence. Th that every who, the devil, other people, even your own conscience, every who that would stand before God accusing is completely silenced by the very presence of Jesus who stood condemned in your place. I have this picture in my mind that I like. 
that the devil is before God and he's accusing. Did you see what Mickey did? Did you see what Mickey said? How could you? And God doesn't say a word. He goes like this. And the accuser simply slinks away knowing that Jesus has stood in my place. So we have these two judicial answers and then there's a relational answer. Uh, despite some disagreements we, we would have with him, Karl Barth is considered one of the great theologians of the 20th century. And uh, one time when he was going to a guest lecture, a student asked Dr. Barth, uh, what is the most important truth in the Bible? And Barth replied with a familiar children's song, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. You know, oftentimes when we speak of relationships, we, we, we can say, well, something came between them. Something happened that separated a spouse or a friend or a, a family member. So can anything come between us? Can anything break that relationship? Well, Paul's going to address it in 35 through 39. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for our, your sake we are being killed all day long. We're regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No. In all of these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Who shall? Well, uh, a whole list of possibilities are going to be considered in, in a moment. And uh, as Christians, we, we aren't exempt in suffering from some of these great temptations, particularly the temptations of long-suffering. To think, does God care? Has he abandoned me? Has something come between us? Like I mentioned earlier, uh, human beings have a unique ability, don't they, to think up what ifs. Man, what if, what if tribulation? What if distress or hardship? What if persecution? What if, what if deprivation, famine or nakedness? What if danger? What if, what if sword? And then in verse 36, he quotes from Psalm 44:22, which doesn't seem very encouraging. People are being killed all day long and slaughtered like sheep. It's, like, um, it's probably what maybe they were feeling at the moment. But, but the point is trying to make, it, it, Paul is trying to make is this. Suffering has always been the lot of God's people. You're not experiencing something unusual. And so in verse 37, after listing all of those possibilities, uh, Paul's answer is this, a resounding, no, no. No, none of these things shall separate us but rather we are more than conquerors over such things. Now, you got to understand that the emphasis here is on the greatness of our victory. It's on the completeness of our victory, but it's not on the immediacy of our victory. 
See, when, when God said, uh, when Paul says God causes all things to work together, I think we can tend to think, yeah, you know, in a couple weeks, you know, in a month or next year, ultimately, because of the context, God often does work for our good in this life. But in the context, he's talking about God is working everything for our eternal good. That, that our sufferings in this life are are producing for us an eternal weight of glory that far outweighs them all. In Corinthians, Paul says, they're actually preparing for us. In, in other words, that, that your suffering in this life right now is, is making eternity even better. It's preparing a, a better eternity for you. So none of these things shall, shall separate us because of this great victory. So we don't need to grimly muddle through life. We actually are, Paul says, more than conquerors because of the very things that from the world's perspective, they look at as defeats. But from God's perspective, from an eternal perspective, we, we see actually as, as victories. And we are more than conquerors, not because we're mighty, but we're more than conquerors through him who loved us. We, we ultimately conquer all of these things because Jesus loves us, because God loves us. And so Paul can write in verses 38 and 39, for I am sure. I am sure. His personal testimony and, and conviction on all of these things that he wants to be ours as well is that I, I have no doubts whatsoever about God's love for me, about the effects of the gospel for me, uh, about these realities. So he lists these couplets, neither death nor life. Not only is there nothing in life, there's nothing in death. De death death is, is one of the great fears. I remember one time doing a message and Googling fear of death and millions of, of, of hits on, on fear of death. Um, and, and death is the greatest of all separators, isn't it? And yet in God's economy, death doesn't separate us, but death now unites us with Jesus in a greater and more glorious way than we ever could have imagined. Nor powers. In this context, he's talking about astrological powers which ruled people's thinking, rules people's lives. So fate, so chance, these impersonal forces in the universe for us might be evolutionary change, nor powers, nor height, uh, nor, nor depth, um, nothing in space. Uh, nor the present or things to come, nothing in time. Nothing right now, nothing in the future. How many of your anxieties are rooted in what's going to happen in the future instead of what's happening today? Uh, but, but Paul says, no, not time, not space. Time and space are things that creation is made of. So in other words, everything. And then, again, because we have a great ability to think up exceptions nor anything else in all of creation. So Paul is like, I, I know somebody's going to think of something. Uh, 
yeah, but Paul, what about? No, no, let's just, let's catch it all here. Nothing else in all of creation. Even excluding one of God's elect just messing up so badly they could lose their salvation. Nothing, nothing in all of creation can separate this. Those whom he, he, he also. None of those things, nothing, nothing, nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus, your Lord. John Stott said this, our confidence is not in our love for him, praise God, which is frail, fickle, and faltering, but in his love for us, which is steadfast, faithful, and persevering. Jay Sidler Baxter said, underneath all our seemingly big but comparatively tiny burden of care, are the strong arms and tender upholding of an infinite wisdom, an infinite power, and an infinite love, which will never let us down, never give us up, and never let us go. Paul starts today by saying, what shall we say to these things? What shall be the corporate witness of the church? But at the end of us, each of us, each and every one of us must ask this question, what shall I say to these things? What shall I say to these things? How, how shall I respond to, if God is for me, who can be against me? My prayer is that through God's word, everyone would say with Paul, I am sure. And that every one of us could say this morning with Philip Melanchthon, that's it. That's it. Amen.